Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast, where we promote a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. We seek to inspire educators by fusing the best of modern research with the insights of the great philosophers of education. Join us in the great conversation and share with a friend or colleague to keep the Renaissance spreading. Our session today is Equipped to Learn, Practical Strategies to Promote Self-Education in the Classroom. Uh, we talk a lot about self-education here in the Christian Classical School movement. It's something that we're proud of, that we want to see our students demonstrate more of in the classrooms, but I don't know if we often take time to think about what that actually means, what that looks like, and how we can do so in a way that's biblical and honoring to Christ. So that will be the topic of discussion today. Um, a little bit about myself. Uh, my name is Colby Atchison. I'm the new head of school at Clapham School in Wheaton, Illinois, right outside of Chicago there. I'm also a contributor for an organization called Educational Renaissance, where we promote a, a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. I'll be talking a little bit more about that in a little bit. Um, my wife, Bethany, and I have three kids, three young kids, all under the age of four. And so we've got a busy little home. And uh, my, my, my son was just born two weeks ago. So my amazing wife is home with, with the three kids right now. And uh, I'm excited to go back tomorrow and see everyone. So um, that's just a little bit about myself. But let me begin with a quote for us here to, to launch us into the topic. Uh, this is from Dorothy Sayers in her famous essay, The Lost Tools of Learning. Is it not the great defect of our education today, a defect traceable through all the disquieting symptoms of trouble that I have mentioned, that although we often succeed in teaching our pupils subjects, we fail lamentably on the whole in teaching them how to think. They learn everything except the art of learning. I think many of us were intrigued by this essay and this quote, and we're like, yes, that's right. We want our students to learn the art of learning. And as we thought about this more, as I've thought about this more, I've come to believe that really what she's getting at, and we'll find out as well Charlotte Mason is getting at, is this idea of self-education. So that's going to be our focus today. Um, the presentation will go in three parts. Uh, in part one, I'm going to talk about what is self-education, heavily drawing on some work by Charlotte Mason and Dorothy Sayers. Um, in part two, I'll be talking about self-education in a biblical worldview. Um, I don't want us to take for granted as educators that self-education in and of itself is some inherent good. Um, but as Christians, we need to think about it biblically. How can we do self-education in a way that grows our dependence upon the Lord? And part three, practical strategies for promoting self-education. So that's the plan for, for today, and I'll be um, giving away a free gift at the end of this talk, a free ebook, um, so you can look forward to that as well. So let's dive into it. What is self-education? Insights from Charlotte Mason and Dorothy Sayers. Raise your hand if you're a Charlotte Mason fan in here. I figured a lot of folks uh, saw that in the summary and they're like, yes, we need more Charlotte Mason around here. We're coming to that session. Of course, I know everyone loves uh, Dorothy Sayers to some extent. So I'm um, excited to dive into these topics. Charlotte Mason um, was a British educator who lived at the turn of the 20th century, and she was passionate about seeing children learn. And she devoted her, her life to supporting parents and teachers and governesses to seeing that the children in her part of England would love learning and that the work of learning would be theirs to own and champion and that through that they would embark on a life of flourishing. 
probably the most uh, pivotal, pivotal or one key moment in Charlotte Mason's educational journey was, in, was when she was serving the children in a coal miner community. Um, at that time in Britain, it was basically assumed that your socioeconomic status was connected to your intellectual aptitude. And so children of coal miners, blue collar workers, they can't learn, they don't have intellect. And yet she went into these villages, into these communities, and through her unique pedagogy, saw what she calls a renaissance of learning occur. It's incredibly inspiring and um, something that has brought me to the text of Charlotte Mason personally as an educator. So Charlotte Mason, what did she believe about learning and education and how does it connect with self-education? Well, um, there are two key principles for a Charlotte Mason education that you need to grasp. The first is that children are persons, and the second is the science of relations. So any, any good philosophy of education worth its salt is going to have an anthropology, what are human beings, and an epistemology, how do we learn? So for Charlotte Mason, she begins with this principle that children are persons. They are created with an innate desire to learn and to know. They have an internal thought life that isn't created when they enter school, but it's something that God has given to them upon their entry into this world. It's part of being made in God's image. They have desires and interests. They can develop habits. There's their will to be trained. There's this whole aspect of what it means to be human. Children as persons that we can affirm in children from the very youngest of ages. And as a result, children have agency and responsibility. And you can see how this fits so well with self-education. This idea that if we are going to educate ourselves, we need to have the capabilities and the possibilities to do so. And so this principle is key for her way of thinking about children. Children are not mere robots. They're not sponges or blank slates. They're not just information processors, as Karen Glass says. There's so much more than that. They want to feast and chew on ideas. So children are persons. And second, science of relations. Science of relations is this idea that what is learning fundamentally about? Is it about information processing? Is it about getting children to do what we want? No, it's launching children on a pathway of discovery. They are born in relationship with this created world, with God, with one another. It's not about creating those relationships. It's about discovering and cultivating those relationships and seeing how they all connect. The integration of history and geography of the natural world with the world of the humanities, it all fits together into this amazing reality that God has created. So children are persons and science of relations. Charlotte Mason has a quote, a child is not built up from without, but from within. So here we can begin to see this, this high view of children where they are created with this capability of having something cultivated within them. And for Charlotte Mason proponents in this room, that's probably one of the key things that first set you off on this journey, this idea that children are special, that they can learn, that we can give them more than we would potentially expect early on. Children can therefore be entrusted with the responsibility to learn and they can develop habits to this end. Charlotte Mason writes, the children, not the teachers, are the responsible persons. They do the work by self-effort. 
She also writes, the teachers give sympathy, it's like encouragement, and occasionally elucidate, sum up, or enlarge, but the actual work is done by the scholars. So here's a key insight for self-education here. Who is doing the work of learning in the classroom? Is it the teacher? Is it the aide? Or is it the students themselves? Are we inviting them to do the cognitive lifting, as we'll talk more about? This idea of habits is so key, of helping train them in habits of attention and thorough execution and respect and curiosity. Uh, it's not as if as humans we're either born with traits of having good attention or bad attention or like we're born with these fixed traits of curiosity or thorough execution. No, these are grown over time. This was a key insight that Charlotte Mason had even before the modern neuroscience has come to confirm just how plastic and moldable our brains actually are. Uh, one of my, thing, one of my um, tests that I give myself as a teacher when I'm in the classroom to see how I'm doing with my habit training in the classroom is occasionally, you know, I'll set my students on some independent work and then I'll step outside for a moment um, and I'll, I'll leave the classroom. I'm just right outside the door so they can't see me. And the test that I put myself on is if I leave the room, will they continue to work as dutiful scholars? Or will they take that opportunity to, you know, start playing around and talking to a neighbor and taking jokes and all that? Uh, that's a key, a key way of testing how you're doing in developing this idea of self-education, self-motivated scholars. So that's Charlotte Mason. And Dorothy Sayers, just briefly, a couple, couple observations from her essay about what self-education might be. Um, uh, forgive me, I'm going to read this quote here real quick from Charlotte Mason to wrap up. No one knoweth the thing of a man, but the spirit of a man which is in him. Therefore, there is no education but self-education. And as soon as a young child begins his education, he does so as a student. So again, are we force-feeding our students in the classroom? Are we cramming knowledge down their throats? Or are we inviting them to take responsi responsibility for their learning and engage in that process? Dorothy Sayers, in her essay, talks about the difference between subjects and skills. And she laments this idea that we're learning lots of information about, say, history or geography or biology, but we're not actually training students how to think. And of course, that's led to the rebirth of the classical school movement. Um, and she, she draws a, a, a helpful analogy using jigs and tools. Um, I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with, with jigs, but a jig is a piece of equipment that has a very specific use that isn't very well used across projects. So for example, when I was uh, installing new um, cabinet handles on my kitchen cabinets, um, we had to purchase a $50 jig, which is more than I wanted to pay, and it was used so that we could have the precise measurements for each cabinet door, so it would look real sharp, right, and uniform. Well, after we finished the project, I don't have much use for the jig. It's kind of a one and done. Yeah, you can use it for further projects, I suppose, with cabinets, but beyond that, it kind of just sits down in my workshop. Right? Unlike tools, like my miter saw, which is like, oh, let's find any piece of wood we can, any project, we're going to run that through my miter saw, right? That is a tool. It's, it's, um, it's transversible, right? You can use it in many different ways, right? And Charlotte Mace, uh, Dorothy Sayers here uh, draws that connection to the classical liberal arts. These are skills that we can use across the disciplines especially once they leave the classroom. So when they go out into the world, it's not so much can they recall all the facts they know about history, but can they think historically 
as they are engaging the issues of the times? Um, can they think biologically as they're walking around in nature and caring for creation? Right? These are the liberal arts. So Dorothy Sayers says they are doing for their pupils the work which the pupils themselves ought to do. For the sole true end of education is simply this, to teach men how to learn for themselves. And whatever instruction fails to do this is effort spent in vain. And the, the key insight there is teaching men and women how to learn for themselves. How do we do this? Well, we'll get to the practical section in a little bit. Um, I also like Clark and Jane's uh, comment in their liberal arts tradition book, uh, the second edition. Uh, liberal arts education is about tutoring the reason and training the mind in virtue. The intellectual virtues that they can take with them wherever they go. These aren't bodies of knowledge, as important as those are. It, it is important that we have information and knowledge and facts, but the, the key for the self-education idea is these skills of learning. Um, so to, um, to wrap up this, this first part here, summary of self-education, I have to go back to Charlotte Mason herself. One thing at any rate we know with certainty that no teaching, no information becomes knowledge to any of us until the individual mind has acted upon it, translated it, transformed, absorbed it to reappear like our bodily food in forms of vitality. Therefore, teaching, talk and tale, however lucid or fascinating, here she's talking about the sort of talk and tale and teaching that we do as teachers, affects nothing until self-activity be set up. That is, self-education is the only possible education. The rest is mere veneer laid on the surface of a child's nature. What a, what a convicting comment. Um, I don't know about you, but um, sometimes I'm quite proud of, you know, the way I can speak from up front in a classroom setting and, oh, I'm teaching this, this algebraic concept so well or this lesson in history. And don't you guys all understand? Don't you get it? Because I've explained it so well. Right. And then I call on a student. I'm like, so tell me about, you know, Napoleon's, you know, recent battle. And. And they're like, oh, I don't really know. I didn't really understand. What? I just explained it to you, right? So here we have this insight here of the students doing the work of learning. And that is putting them on the road to self-education. All right. Well, I want to transition to part two now and talk about self-education and a biblical worldview. Because so far, you, you could make the critique that this is a fairly human-centered enterprise, a fairly self-centered enterprise. Um, are, we, are we risking here in this project of self-education of creating little, little independent uh, minions, of little arrogant know-it-alls, right? Because they're self-educated. They can learn on their own and they've got this tool set they need to be lifelong learners, right? What's the, what's the risk here we run? How can we do this biblically? Well, um, Carl Truman, um, I'm going to be interacting a lot with his work, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Uh, he's a historian at uh, Grove City. He writes, we all live in a world in which it is increasingly easy to imagine that reality is something we can manipulate according to our own wills and desires and not something that we necessarily need to conform ourselves to or passively accept. And, you know, behind this quote is this idea that we live in, in the world of the modern self, where it is all about myself and yourself and achieving happiness from sort of some inward psychological state. 
And there are some potential dangers here that we need to be aware of as we, again, uh, promote self-education. So just a couple ideas as we think about what I'm talking about here when I say the modern self. Um, The first is the inward turn. And that, that, what I mean by that is um, it's the focus on inwardness, the prioritization of the individual's inner psychology, the purpose of life, the meaning of happiness, identity formation, and ultimate purpose is all bound up in the inner state of the person. Uh, it's very individualized, right? And that's point two, expressive individualism and authenticity. Expressive individualism, we find our own meaning by giving expression to our own feelings and desires. Carl Truman is interacting himself with uh, the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor's work here. Um, And we resonate with this. We see this in Disney movies and all over pop culture that um, our meaning is bound up in our own feelings and desires. And insofar as I'm feeling good about myself and feel like the life that I envision is being achieved, insofar as that's going well, my meaning is there and it's being achieved. Um, as a result, there's this culture of authenticity where we, can't, we, we not only have our own way of expressing this, we have to do so publicly in order to be truly authentic. So it's not enough for me to sort of have my own view of myself and try to achieve it. I must be free to express that. And societies, institutions, and authorities, they have no right to suppress that in any way or to coach me along a particular path because it's all about, as I look inward, who, did, who am I and how can I express who I really am? Uh, this obsession with the self, I think, um, has some potential dangers for us to keep in mind as educators. Um, and as we, as we think about schools, Truman addresses how the nature of even institutions has changed. Schools become platforms of performance where individuals are allowed to be their authentic selves as they give expression to who they are inside. Whereas historically, institutions were places to be formed into a particular vision of virtuous humanity. And of course, that's, that's a key thing that we're trying to recover here as classical Christian educators, that we are in the business of forming human beings. And that sounds strange, but it's true. There is a, a vision for who humans uh, ought to be that we see in Scripture. Uh, there's a path of virtue and wisdom from centuries past that had been carved out for us by the past sages and philosophers of how humans thrive. And to let a little boy or little girl just sort of be who they are inside is an immense disservice to them. We need to coach them and mentor them, train them, come alongside them in this pathway of virtue. And in this world of the modern self, that can be very difficult to do. We feel like we're encroaching upon the child. So dangers of self-education. First, an arrogance, self-reliance, uh, maybe in the form of of uh, something like what Emerson was was talking about, um, or even um, I thought about the poem Invictus being the the captain of my soul. Right? There's this the self-reliance that's both um, impressive and respectable. Like we want our students to be independent, and yet we also want to be weary of this arrogant self-reliance, um, as well as prideful independence and ignorance of one's finitude. What does it mean to embrace uh, one's finitude, to realize that God did not create us to be 
uh, supermen and women to be independent, to handle everything on our own, to refuse to ask to help. Um, we need oxygen to breathe. We need food to move throughout the day. We need sleep. Uh, we have limitations in what we can think about and conceive. These, these uh, moments of finitude, these aspects of finitude, are actually how God created us. And yet, the dangers of self-education potentially is an ignorance of this. So as we think about then what, what is biblical self-education look like, um, this, this would be a, a presentation in and of itself. So I'm just going to just reference a couple scriptural ideas here. Um, the first is from Proverbs 1, 5 through 7 here. Uh, Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. There's a lot going on here, but what we can see is a dependence and a humility upon those who have gone before. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. Well, to hear, you have to be quiet. You have to listen. You can't do all the talking. To increase in learning requires an acknowledgement that we don't know everything. There's more to be learned. To obtain, obtain guidance, to understand a proverb. And of course, most importantly, to be rooted in a healthy fear of the Lord, where we can see our frame and acknowledge that God is so much bigger, so much more powerful, so much more all-knowing than we will ever be. Uh, another verse that came to mind uh, from Jesus, Matthew ten forty one: a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the, for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant his master. So here we have this idea that um, there's, there's a healthy submission that's going on in biblical education where our teachers are actually our authorities and we want to submit to them and, and recognize that we can't do everything on our own, that we need help. And um, to some extent, our goal is not to surpass our teachers in some self-glorifying way. So uh, three ideas here to, to wrap up this, this part here on biblical education. Um, there are three key points just to kind of uh, take away here on part two. Uh, the first is having a Godward focus. So looking beyond ourselves and toward, and toward God for truth and meaning. Um, in him we live and move and have our being. Our ultimate longings are fulfilled in Christ, not in our own selves and what we think we can achieve. Uh, we are made in God's image, and we need to let that sink in for a moment. Uh, we are images, uh, not the, the eternal reality of the Godhead, of the triune Godhead himself, but images of this reality. So we need to have this Godward focus as we engage in biblical self-education. Uh, second, healthy dependence. And I've alluded to this a little bit, but embracing our need for others in the learning process. We are not self-kept, self-made, or self-saved people. We need to reject the self-made myth, and we need to encourage our students to reject that myth. 
But here's where it gets tricky, right? Because we want to, we want to create strong children, the kind of children that, I didn't attend his session, but the Keith McCurdy session, I would imagine, where you know, children are resilient and they're gritty and they're strong and independent, right? All that, it's like, yes, amen, that's great. And yet, paradoxically, healthy dependence, where they can do no thing on their own strength. Embracing our need for the help of others and the help of the Holy Spirit. Growing in reliance on the Spirit and the body of Christ. Uh, And finally here, cultivating humility. Seeing ourselves, including our giftings, within the sacred order. Um, I live in Illinois. It's very flat, so I don't get to see many mountains these days. But I, I always delight in getting to go hiking in the mountains. I was in the Rockies last summer. And to just be in a place that's so majestic with such beauty around me and to just remi- remember how small I actually am in the created order. Um, this world has been around much longer than I have and it'll go on much longer after I am gone. And that's, uh, that's important to remember and to help our children remember that even as we are Uh, supporting them to be strong, self-educated boys and girls and young men and women. We also want them to uh, develop a context for where they are situated in the created uh, created order. Yes, made in God's image. Yes, endowed with a special rationality and capacity for morality and making beauty and order. but also not, e- not, e- not eternal, um, not immortal, uh, not omniscient uh, in the way that, that God is. Are you ready to take your classroom or school to the next level? Here at Educational Renaissance, we want to equip you with skills and practices that will help you achieve your goals as educators. Join us for our next live webinar and take a deep dive into the topics you've learned about through our blog posts, podcasts, books, and videos. Learn practical skills and get your questions answered to level up your classroom or school. Simply sign up for our next live webinar on our webinar page at educationalrenaissance.com. Learn more about upcoming webinars or find other downloadable content. If you believe teaching is a craft, then join us for our next webinar where you can be apprenticed to gain valuable skills and practices. Sign up at educationalrenaissance.com. Now let's move to practical strategies for promoting self-education. Great, we've talked about um, helping children learn the how, uh, how to learn, not just the what, um, becoming independent thinkers, Um, developing those habits of attention and thorough execution and curiosity. We've talked about the philosophy. We've talked about the Bible a little bit. Now, how do we do this in the classroom? Well, I have five strategies, uh, strategies for us this morning. And the first is to keep the main thing the main thing. Keep the learning the main attraction in your classroom. So, you know, flowing out of behaviorist psychology and the like, uh, modern, class, modern classroom management principles, we very much have reduced 
classroom management to the manipulation of children? What kind of carrot on the stick can I put out before my students to motivate them to learn? Because you know, otherwise they wouldn't be interested. So what skittles can I throw them? What kind of uh, behavioral mechanism can I put on the wall that reinforces that behavior? Um, you know, and it's, and I, I wanna be careful here because I, I, I know that, that some of this is probably going on and, and to some extent could be wisely used. But at the end of the day, if Charlotte Mason is right that children are persons created to be learners and curious and explorers, then if the curriculum's right and the pedagogy's right, we shouldn't need much, we shouldn't need much external motivation. So we need to be careful how we use things like grades, candy, peer approval, and even Charlotte Mason would caution teacher approval to some extent, because the moment you take any of those things away, if they're dependent on those things as the chief motivator of their learning, then you lose the love of learning and you lose that desire for self-education. Um, so I suppose the insight here is that self-education is, is rooted to some extent in this inner, in, inner motivation that develops over time. So keep the main thing the main thing. Um, and I, I could go into to more practical advice on how to do this. Um, at, at our school at Clapham, we're very intentional about, um, about how we use praise in the classroom, about um, focusing on developing habits and sowing ideas and giving good feedback and accountability as opposed to modern behavioral methods, things like that. Um, two, enculturate with ideas. It's got to start with ideas and a vision for self-education. You can't force self-education on anyone. That's, uh, that's a contradiction of terms. So again, at, at Clapham, where I work, we have a motto we recite every day, inspired by Charlotte Mason. I'm sure that um, all of your schools have different ways that you begin the day at assembly. Um, a motto or a scripture reading or a creed, something like that. Um, ours goes like this. I am a child of God. I ought to do his will. I can do what he asks of me, and by his grace, I will. Now, there are things I like about this and things I don't like. Uh, the things that you can imagine that I'm a little bit, you know, careful about is there's a focus on the eye. So that modern self idea that I've been talking about, you know, we need to be careful about overemphasizing the power of I, right? The power of self. But I think the, the real genius of a model like this that, that Charlotte Mason was going for is that it invites children to view themselves as the agents of their education. They have, as she puts it, the possibilities, capabilities, duties, and determining power that belong to them as persons. And so for a first grader or a third grader or a seventh grader each morning to recite something like this, and they recite it perfectly every day and they always know what they're saying, right? No, I'm just, I'm joking, right? You know, mottos can become mundane and routine, right? But, you know, best case scenario, as they recite this, it begins ingrained in them that when they put on that Clapham uniform and they're beginning the day, that the learning process is theirs to own, that they are here to learn. They're not going to be force-fed today. They're not going to be dragged along by their teacher. This is something that they need to own as young scholars. And that's, that's the road of self-education. So I would encourage, um, you know, whether it's a motto or, um, or, you know, a callback or a chant or something like that. Think through what ideas you're beginning the day with, beginning the year with, the week, and how you can enculturate in your classrooms and throughout your schools this idea of self-education. 
Third, uh, the power of narration, and I'm going to add to that imitation. Um, narration is a method of assimilation, giving students the opportunity to make the knowledge their own. So you might remember that Charlotte Mason quote I read a few minutes ago about until the students have acted upon the knowledge themselves, they haven't really learned anything. Uh, that, that, I think, is a great insight. Jack Beckman, a professor over at Covenant, he calls narration thinking made visible. I really like that, thinking made visible. How do I know what's going on in my students' heads? How can I get into their heads a little bit? Well, narration, thinking made visible, both through um, oral tellbacks as well as written. It holds students accountable for listening and recalling what they've read. Um, you, might, you might be aware of Jason Barney's book published by Circe, um, A Classical Guide to Narration. I, I really recommend that. Jason's a, a colleague and friend of mine. Um, and one of the cautions he, he gives in the book is our culture is obsessed with judging and critiquing. And what narration does is it, is it postpones the judging and the critiquing and it allows the imitative work to happen first. And I think that narration really, really helps with that. Narration is, you know, reading a text or looking at a painting. There's lots of different ways to do it. But the point is, after you've um, sat under and engaged um, and sort of have taken in the, the, the book or the painting or the nature you, you turn it over, you close it, you put it out of mind sight, and then you call on a student to tell back what was just read with detail and author's language and sequence. It's not a summary. It's really trying to, to get all that you can, and, um, and it's just a really, really great practice. Um, I've, been, I've been reading a book called The Talent Code by Dan Coyle. I, I recommend it, and um, he, he, he looks at... Um, talent and talent hotbeds across history and across regions of the globe. And uh, one story that he, bring, he, he brings up is Emily uh, Bronte and her sisters. And, you know, um, this was a hotbed of talent that emerged. Like her and her sisters started writing amazing things as teenagers and young adults in their 20s. It's like, how did that happen? And the way the story was told for a while was that, oh, their dad was super suppressive, but despite their father's cold demeanor and sort of locking them in the house or something like that, they just were popping out these beautiful stories from the get-go. And they were just, they, they didn't get, have access to any other magazines or books or periodicals. They were just like writing as geniuses. And, uh, and as, the, as, they, as the biographers did more research on her life, and her sister's lies, what they found is that, no, actually they were reading obsessively. And they read tons of magazines and books and articles, and that their earliest stories were, number one, bad, and number two, imitating what they had read. In other words, they were engaging in a, a, a broader form of narration or retrieval practice, um, imitating what they had read, and through that beginning to shape this faculty of being able to write and produce thoughts, which is an aspect of self-education. Uh, so the power of narration, uh, strategy number four of five, deliberate practice. I'm not going to say too much about this because uh, my colleague Patrick is going to be sharing tomorrow on Arete and modern research. And he's going to be drawing some really great connections between this uh, modern idea of deliberate practice and and ancient virtue theory. Um, but I'll just leave you with a, a couple of thoughts on this. Practice doesn't make perfect, but the right practice does. The way my basketball coach put it was, perfect practice makes perfect. And uh, what my basketball coach meant by that was a real emphasis on form. And you gotta always have that form. And he's right. 
but he missed um, two other aspects about it um, that are really key to deliberate practice. And the first is working. So there's three steps to deliberate practice. The first is working on the technique. So, you know, you might imagine with a younger group of students, they're working on penmanship, writing in cursive, practicing maybe the letter H or something like that. So they're all working on the same same letters. Uh, teachers and aides are circulating for support. Uh, and they're not just circulating, but they're also giving feedback. They're, they're giving constant warm yet specific feedback. Uh, they're not letting the standard go. They're being specific. Hey, this, this age could be formed a little bit better. This, notice this bottom of the letter here. You know, um, giving specific feedback. And then here's the third part, which is really key for deliberate practice, is coming back and checking to see that they implemented the feedback. Because a key part of the the modern research is that immediate implementation of the feedback is going to be the key to getting them on that that road towards success and high performance and all of that. And and so the reason why I bring up deliberate practice in self-education is because there's so much going on neurologically with deliberate practice that if you are training your students well, you're actually creating habits within them that that will actually persist beyond the year in the school. Yeah, they might forget it a little bit over the summer, but they pick it up again in the fall, right? And so deliberate practice is one way of sustaining long-term learning and habits of learning, whether it's the ability to read deeply or engage in good research or write with good penmanship or um, to finish the assignment without having somebody hovering over your shoulder, right? Uh, and five, uh, build ratio. This is a um, this is a phrase from Teach Like a Champion. Um, ratio is this idea of who's doing the work of learning in your classroom. So you know, I talked about as, you know when the teacher's talking up front, they're doing the most cognitive lifting. And so while it's really tempting after you read a chapter of say Oliver Twist to say, now let me explain this to you, class. Um, and that, that can feel really good as teachers, and you know, in some ways we can elucidate better than they can, but, um, but we're, we're missing out on that approach is the opportunity for them to do that cognitive work of trying to explain it themselves, whether it's through narration or summary or answering a question, um, doing the cognitive work themselves through st- student participation, how many students are doing the thinking, and the depth of thinking that is going on. There's two ways to think about ratio there. Um, so, you know, you might begin with something like narration where you're getting at, you know, the, the immediate details, but then going to that next level with those deeper comprehension questions. Um, three, three brief uh, techniques that I think embody build ratio well. Um, the first is wait time. So when you ask a question, it can be tempting to do something like, you know, Tyler, explain to me why this character did X. And you start with the name Tyler, and what does that automatically potentially do for the rest of the students in your class? They turn off their brains, right? Because from off the hook, you're talking to Tyler. But if you flip that around, what is the motivation of the character? And you ask that to the whole class, you give good eye contact around, you wait, wait time, and then you cold call a student, call in a student at random. And um, the cultural expectation that you're building is that they'll be ready to answer that. 
So that's sort of a combination of wait time and cold call. Cold call is where you're not only taking volunteers, but you're calling on students at random, which again is a sort of a no student left behind sort of way of running your classroom where you believe every child can learn and that you are going to hold them up to reach their full potential and engage in this project of self-education. Um, last, uh, last technique with build ratio that I wanted to mention was everybody writes. Um, and this is, this is probably my favorite technique. Um, this is where you, know, you have whiteboards out and you know, before you lob out the big question for a discussion um, or uh, I'm trying to think of examples for other subjects, but, but the point is that you get all the students on their whiteboards working on something, bullet pointing an answer, thinking through a, a math problem, and when you have every student doing that at the same time, you have 100% ratio, which is so great, as opposed to what's the alternative? Hey, everyone, look at me up front while on the whiteboard, I you know, map out the, the math problem or something like that. Now I have every student doing the work of learning. Um, I think that's a helpful way to, um, to facilitate self-education. Well, uh, thank you. Before we go into Q&A here, I wanted to close with this quote uh, from Charlotte Mason. The teacher who allows his scholars the freedom of the city of books is at liberty to be their guide, philosopher, and friend, and is no longer the mere instrument of forcible intellectual feeding. She obviously valued a book-centered education, as do we as classical educators. And whatever forcible intellectual feeding is, that's something we want to stay away from. Facilitating self-education is allowing students to feed themselves, to engage in the rich, the, uh, the rich feast before them. And that's my encouragement to you all as educators in this project of self-education. So thank you. Well, I can't remember the, the time. Do we have any time for Q&A here? About 20 minutes. Great. Awesome. That's awesome. So, um, yeah, I would love to hear any questions you have. I think, uh, do you want to give any guidance on asking yeah, questions? Um, so, we have a few online questions that I'll ask, and if anyone in person has any questions, just come up here, and I'll hand you the mic, and you can ask them directly. So, let's get started. Uh, first question from online. How does the power of narration work with math and science subjects? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I can give a couple of thoughts on that. Um, I, I'm a little bit rusty on, on that, but you know, I think the big picture idea behind narration is, is um, having them sort of sketch out and write out their understanding of what's going on. So um, one, one way to do it, if you are teaching, say, an algorithm of steps in math, is you, you teach them through the algorithm and, uh, and then maybe show it in a math problem. And then you have everyone get out their whiteboards and they all kind of tell back on their whiteboards, you know, the four steps of the algorithm that they're practicing and then demonstrate that with the math problem. Um, so that, that's one way um, to do that. Um, I really appreciate um, John Mays and uh, what he's been doing with Navari Science and some of the questions he's asking, where I wouldn't call those comprehension questions on the quizzes like narration prompts, strictly speaking, but they are retrieval practice prompts where they're open-ended questions that give students the opportunity to write several sentences explaining a concept. And as they're doing that, um, they are engaging in a form of narration or at least retrieval practice. 
If self-education is cultivated and learned, how do we invite new arrivals to our classes into this way of learning if they've never experienced or learned how to be a self-learner by the time they enter later grades and they haven't been in our classes since the beginning and are now at a supreme disadvantage from their classmates who have cultivated years of growth and self-learning? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think there's, there's an admissions aspect to this, right, where you want to make sure that the family and the child is a, is a good fit, that they share the values of the institution, assuming it is a good fit and they're, they're wanting to learn how to do this. Um, you know, the culture you've set in your classroom is going to be key. What I've seen at my school is that if you have 80 to 90% of your students who have been at your school for a while and they have these habits down and they, they display the curiosity and the self-motivation. It's amazing how new students who have been at a public school or a different kind of school come in and they're kind of just looking around and they're like, oh, the teacher just told everyone to start writing and everyone's doing that. I better do that too. You know, and they just, they start doing that themselves, right? And they, they sort of, um, they conform to the culture in a good sense, right? Because around them, they have there's this spirit of inquiry in the room. We actually accepted a lot of new um, eighth graders this past year in a large eighth grade class that embodies these values really well. And it was really cool to see um, six six new students who have been at public schools in different places come in and um, pretty early on catch um, catch the ethos of the classroom and the spirit of the classroom. Um, so I would say that culture is going to be key. And then a, a final comment on that. Um, well, it was two final comments. One, um, you know, it does begin with the belief that the students can do this. So it does go back to the principle that children are persons. And if you do have a high view of children and what they're capable of, then as a teacher, you know, one of your initial one-on-one -on -one conversations with them for the year is, hey, I'm so excited you're in my classroom. I just want to let you know that I believe in you and I support you. And it's, there's going to be a learning curve this year. I know you've never been at a classical school, but I am here to help you. And I'm just, I'm, I invite you to give your all and I'm going to come alongside you. And I'm excited to see the growth that you engage on. So that engage and that individual mentoring is, is key from, from the get-go. And, um, and then just providing that, that feedback throughout the year. That's, uh, that's all from our virtual audience, so we'll open it up to anybody in person who has any questions, they can come up here and use the mic. It's a big, uh, big ask. You gotta come up and walk up to the front here. Hey, I'm going to be teaching sixth grade for the first time next year. Awesome. And um, I think that all of my students are going to be self-learners, but I'm noticing, I think that there's going to be a big difference in the pace. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to have some really, really overachieving students who can read on their own and make their own notes and tie, make connections to other areas of the curriculum. And then there's going to be some people that I will have given them 15 minutes to read and they'll be on paragraph two. So. Can you offer some suggestions about how to equalize the pacing and maybe uh, meet the needs of both ends of the spectrum? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question and um, probably a challenge that we all face to some extent in our classrooms. 
Um, certainly, certainly in the early ages with things like reading instruction and, and math instruction, but throughout the ages, whether it's the early years or later, there's always going to be the need to differentiate um, based on pace and skill set and ability. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, there's lots of material out there on how to differentiate well, um, but one, one strategy that I employ um, when, when I was in the classroom more is uh, allowing that independent work time to be a time for students to kind of engage in their individualized track, and then I'm circulating and supporting and um, having materials ready to go so that the students who are faster paced have that enriching material that they can keep working on and chewing on um, while I'm supporting the younger students. Um, I think one mistake we make is, and it's, it's, it's less of a mistake and more of just an understandable tendency, is we, we, you know, we gravitate towards the students who are struggling and we run to really support them, but we forget about the, the high-performing students in the classroom and how we can be ready to challenge them on that side of the spectrum. So, so, um, yeah, you've got to go into your lesson with a couple different tracks in mind. And um, so that, that's one approach. Um, but I also, you know, in, in some of the, depending on the lesson, the skill, what, what the, the nature of what you're trying to teach that day, um, there is an element of, say, in a discussion, letting the, the struggling students sort of take what they can get out of the lesson, there is, there is room and space for that. If you're having a complex discussion over some, some literary element, you know, it's like, I don't think, you know, so-and-so is really tracking here. Well, you'd be surprised what, what he might be picking up. And so I would encourage you to, um, to maintain a strong belief in what your students are capable of and not sell them short. All right, well, hey, I'll be here to chat afterwards. I just want to briefly mention our work at Educational Renaissance. So um, Patrick, Jason, and I have been running a website for a few years where we have a weekly blog. Uh, we've also been running a podcast now um, as well as a webinar series. And so there's all sorts of different resources that we're kind of piling together to, to serve teachers. We're so excited about this movement and what's going on. And we've realized that teachers need more support. And so we're here um, to help you. There's lots of great content for you. And um, just as a token of gratitude for you coming today, I did want to share this ebook with you. You're welcome to scan the QR code and, and download it. Um, Patrick, uh, my, my friend up here and I, we've been podcasting each evening, actually, just kind of reflecting on the conference this week. So if that's interesting to you, you can check out our podcast, Educational Renaissance. Uh, we'll have books coming out this summer and next fall. But yeah, thanks so much for listening, and you guys have a great day.